Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports program brought to you by Radio New Zealand Sport. On this week's show, we call the Rowing World Championships in Korea to talk to Noel Donaldson, the new coach of Olympic champions Hamish Bond and Eric Murray. The troubled life of cricketer Jesse Ryder gets more difficult after it's revealed the batsman is serving a suspension for taking banned substances. David Howman from the World Anti-Doping Agency joins us to explain the dangers of supplements. Equestrian Blythe Tate talks about the tragic death of New Zealand inventor Tom Gadsby and rugby union boss Steve Chew explains the player's new collective contract. Then New Zealand NBA player Stephen Adams comes home to hold court over a legion of young fans in Wellington. The Rowing World Championships are being held in South Korea this weekend, where a record 72 nations will compete in the premier event on the rowing calendar. New Zealand is racing 14 boats with single sculler Mahi Drysdale and men's pair Hamish Bond and Eric Murray trying to defend the world titles they won in Slovenia two years ago. The new coach of Olympic champions Bond and Murray says he's a little nervous ahead of the tournament. Noel Donaldson was formerly the head coach of Rowing Australia who crossed the Tasman earlier this year to look after some of New Zealand's premier oarsmen. The 57-year-old coached Australia's Coxless Four to back-to-back golds in Barcelona and Atlanta, but now he's guiding a crew that's already on top of the world. He told Stephen Hewson about his strategy with Bond and Murray and his impression of the Korean regatta. Facilities-wise, they've done a magnificent job for a, a country that isn't a main uh, rowing nation. The key point is it's quite hot and humid. It takes a bit to deal with that. Apart from that, we're very well set up and, and being well looked after. How are guys shaping up? Everyone is fit and ready, are they? Pretty much. I mean, they've been very diligent with the entire team about health and hygiene and certainly not a third world country by any imagination, but, you know, you do need to be quite careful about uh, that sort of thing and uh, pretty much everyone's pretty healthy. Uh, we don't bring a lot of spare people, so we, we really need to have everyone in good settle. Pretty much all the crews are training well. Men's pair took a few days to settle in because they came a couple of days later because of when their boat was going to be here, but they're well settled in the last 48 hours. They've made some really good strides forward. How do you go about coaching the likes of Hamish and Eric when their record is so impressive? It's not a difficult task. Uh, one of the first things that happened when I became their coach was to uh, make sure I had two ears and, and one mouth and listen a lot and find out sort of more about their background. You know, from afar, you watched in awe of their race, but you know, it was really important to find out more what made the entire machine tick, and I think I'm pretty well across that. So we're looking at this as the first year of another four, Thus far, they're going pretty well, being undefeated, and we're just trying to make sure we manage a workload and have them in pretty good condition by the time they race on Sunday, and then hopefully a little bit better as the week goes on. Given it is the first year in a four-year cycle, do you look this year to maybe introduce technique changes if you think that's needed, or is it a case of simply keeping things moving as as smoothly as possible and, and not changing much at all? A little bit of both. I mean, the first thing that sort of strikes your mind is not to change much, but the one thing, because they're getting older and they're trying to manage lifestyle and things as well, and how long can you sustain a really intense training regime? Um, And so that's one of the things that's been 
change a little bit is to do a little bit less volume. And if you do that and you still want to go just about as fast, then you've got to make sure that skills and, and, and other aspects of their preparation are, uh, are right there. So they wouldn't be in Olympic form yet, but fortunately they had a buffer on their opponents at the Olympic Games. But they're pretty happy with their form so far. But um, again, the racing is going to be the thing uh, that's going to prove it for them. And, and, and doesn't matter how good you are, you still have to face the music when the race starts. It must be quite daunting for yourself as a coach coming in to help these guys out. How have you managed that? I get asked that question probably daily, you know, and, and the more pointed question is, you know, if you lose, it'll be your fault, you know, so don't stuff up principle. Um, although I'm not that tall, uh, I've got pretty broad shoulders and been around a, a long period of time, and I, I don't focus on that at all, you know, I focus on the process and what we need to do to win, so I'm, I'm probably a bit like being a little nervous and apprehensive of coming into competition, but I certainly don't have fears of their record or, you know, taking over from a master coach and those sort of things there too, you know. If you did, you wouldn't be yourself and you, and you wouldn't give them the, the best opportunity of your coaching as well. So I'm happy that I've got the blend right at the moment. Is there anything in particular that you've sort of brought into it that is your own style that, that maybe they hadn't been introduced to previously? A little bit. I think it's more me going their way than, than trying to take them my way. We sometimes do talk about you know, my crews of the past and whatever and what made athletes tick or not tick, but it's not a, an oft-talked-about uh, subject at all or you know, how, how we went about things. I, I like to think that I've not copied Dick by any imagination, but catered to what their needs are as distinct from coaching them within a great blueprint that I might have walked in with. And, and I think every coach has to do that. You, know, you can't come in and just say here's my way, and if you do this, it's going to be better. You know, it's a, it's a learning journey for all of us all the time. How do you help them avoid the fact that, given the record is so impressive, they must feel as though they can't be beaten for a start, and another world title is theirs simply by being at the start line almost? You always caution any athlete from sort of thinking about it in, in absolutely direct terms like that, as if we can't be beaten. And I, I think there's a difference between being very confident that you will win again if you execute your race uh, properly and, and being cocky that uh, you know, no one can beat us. You know? And sometimes there's a balance between the, uh, the, the two of those. But I'd like to think that they're professional enough that they're always wanting to make their boat go fast. And if they do that, then it's going to take a very, very good crew to beat them. You know? So uh, I, I don't get too much of a sense of uh, cockiness. You know? There's a confidence and a, and a bit of arrogance, but certainly not... Uh, to a point whereby they might make themselves vulnerable and, and they also will keep a keen eye on the stand of the opposition as well. So uh, That's one of the joys about coaching you know, very elite athletes. You, know, you don't have to intervene too much in their emotional or um, motivated states at all. You know, they, they get themselves pretty, pretty well set to that anyway. And managing their personalities because uh, they're quite two very different characters, aren't they? They are and, and there's, there's always cliches and quotes about marriages and opposites attract and all of those sort of things, but I think it's a handy thing that they're both very individual people. You know, they get on extremely well from a rowing sense. They keep things pretty simple, and, and it makes it easy for me. You know, I, I have a slightly different relationship with each of them, and and not too much in either of their pockets at, at, at all, too. So I'd say, you know, for three people, it works fairly uh, harmoniously at the moment. That was Noel Donaldson talking to Stephen Houston. If you're not sure. Don't take it. That's the advice being given to athletes by New Zealand's anti-doping agency after cricketer Jesse Ryder's positive test for banned performance-enhancing substances.
Ryder took a weight loss supplement he bought over the internet, which he says didn't list all of its ingredients. The New Zealand Cricket Players Association says athletes use supplements regularly and should get more help when deciding what to take. Jacob McSweeney reports. Jesse Ryder tested positive to two band performance-enhancing compounds after taking a weight loss supplement in the shape of two capsules five days prior to playing for the Wellington Firebirds on March 24. The Sports Tribunal says while the usual penalty is two years, it satisfied Ryder was taking the supplement to lose weight and not to improve his sporting performance and reduce his suspension to six months. The ban is backdated to April and it will lift in October before the new season begins. The chief executive of drug-free sport New Zealand, Graham Steele, is disappointed with Ryder, who had in the previous season been through its education sessions about anti-doping. He says Ryder's biggest failure was not consulting drug-free sport about the weight loss supplement he had been advised to use by a friend. There is absolutely no compulsion on athletes to take supplements, particularly a supplement of this nature which has a stimulant. It is by definition a stimulant and stimulants are banned. So an athlete, uh, in order to take this, needs to make the choice, I want to take this. There was no advice from any expert person. This was the advice of a friend that, that he should. No compulsion to take it. Clear warning that there was a danger. Don't take it. Graham Steele says supplements are always changing and often contaminated or laced with banned substances. And it's impossible for organisations like Drug Free Sport to keep track of them all. The difficulty is that much of this is imported, so the labelling is done offshore with different sets of rules to what we might have in New Zealand. It's a terribly difficult area, and and the bottom line is athletes need to realise that while they may want to take supplements, there are risks, there are things they can do to reduce those risks, and unfortunately that didn't happen in this case. Keith Mills from the Players Association says supplements are used by the vast majority of high-performance athletes here and around the world. He says there isn't enough clarity for athletes when deciding what to take. When you go and, and ask someone, Drake Free Sport New Zealand or anyone, you know, is it okay if I take this supplement, it will come with a caveat all the time. Well, you, oh, you take it at your own risk, you know, it might be contaminated, we don't know what's in it. So it is difficult for athletes, they, they need it, they're often given supplements to take in their various high-performance environments, yet they bear all, all responsibility if it's contaminated. Heath Mills says there needs to be a discussion about how athletes can make better decisions about supplements. Meanwhile, Jesse Ryder's new team Otago will represent New Zealand in Cricket's Champions League in India next month, but he isn't eligible to play for them anyway, as he played the qualifying tournament for Wellington. Otago Cricket's chief executive Ross Dykes is standing by their man. We felt it was particularly innocent. They made available to us all the information. All of that has been borne out 100% by the findings of the tribunal that it was pretty much an innocent incident. And I think we're very happy that we can move on and, and have Jesse play some cricket down here as from the start of the season. The sports tribunal says another unnamed sports person recently made the same mistakes as Jesse Ryder. It says that person, who also had international sporting experience and drug education, received a six-month suspension as well. That was Jacob McSweeney reporting for Extra Time. Meanwhile, the head of the World Anti-Doping Agency, New Zealander David Howman, says athletes have long been advised not to take any supplements. Mr Howman told Richard Wayne the supplement industry is unregulated and can't be trusted not to add banned substances to its products. Well, it's been an issue for 15 years. The message has gone to athletes for 15 years. Be very aware of supplements. The medical professions say you don't need them and stay away from them because the industry itself is not regulated. You cannot rely on what's on the labelling. Why aren't these regulated? Can they be regulated? Of course, that's up to governments, but you'll find that 80% and maybe more of supplements are manufactured in the United States uh, and the FDA in that country has, has no jurisdiction because Congress has decided they would continue to manufacture them without such regulation. 
So it's been a major issue for many years. It's not something new. Uh, and what our concern has been, and we've mentioned this many times, is that in fact some of the manufacturers are intentionally putting stuff in the supplements that is of a performance-enhancing nature and is on the banned list. If they don't say what's in there, and, and they're putting extra stuff in there, I mean, that's just criminal, and, and shouldn't they be the ones who are getting cracked down on here? Because a lot of athletes do take supplements. You say they shouldn't take any supplements at all? Well, the, the, it's not me. This is the um, medical commissions of many sporting bodies in the world, including the IOC. I've been saying this for a long time. There is a, a rule in relation to uh, anti-doping. It's a strict liability rule. You're responsible for what goes into your body. Because of the risk component of supplements, and this is not a new thing, there's always been advice given to athletes to stay away from supplements. There have been many who have tried to say, well, we'll, we'll do deals with supplement companies where there can be some form of guarantee that what you get is not on the banned list. But that hasn't proved to be successful in many countries either. Still, athletes are all taking them. I mean, something like 90-something percent we keep hearing are all taking them. I mean, the pressure, I guess, at the top level to find any edge legally. Well, it's the same thing as getting an edge in any walk of life. People take risks if they want to try to walk on that slippery slope. And what we keep saying is it is a slippery slope, and if you fall, it's your responsibility. I mean, I've, I've had this discussion with many people about supplements, so it started in the 90s with, with Nandrolone, and that was a vexed issue for many years. Uh, it was crunched in the early 2000s. We put the responsibility firmly back to the manufacturing industry and to the governments. Uh, it's a part of the UNESCO treaty, with governments themselves, uh, in acknowledging the, the World Anti-Doping Code, have said these are issues that they will address. We have to leave it with them. Labelling doesn't seem to be enough. Is, is there any way labelling could ever be enough? Probably not, because labelling means putting a name, and, and some substances have many different names in, in different parts of the world. That's always been an issue with the pharmaceutical industry. In, in one country it's called something, and in another country it's called something else. So we've had examples of athletes, for example, going to Olympic Games and picking up some stuff in the local pharmacy, not realising that the name on it or the, the, the contents of it will be different from the contents of the stuff they've taken back in their own country uh, and that's led to problems so the industry itself not only the pharmaceutical industry but the supplement industry is, is one which is not at one uh, it's very difficult therefore for us should all supplements go through drug testing by drug testing authorities before any athlete takes them well that's been tried it's only as good as the batch you test you might get one batch from a company that which is fine the next batch that comes out might not be that's the issue when you have an unregulated industry. That was the head of the World Anti-Doping Agency, David Howman, talking to Richard Wayne. New Zealand's leading equestrians are paying tribute to a promising young rider killed in Britain earlier this week, but say safety changes to the sport will never completely eliminate the risk. Tom Gadsby suffered fatal injuries in a fall at the Summerford Park International Competition. He had moved to the UK to further his experience and ultimately try for a place on New Zealand's equestrian team. The former Olympic gold medalist and world eventing champion Blythe Tate has competed at many of the same events as Gasby this season. Tate told Radio New Zealand's Simon Mercer the 26-year-old had clear potential. He looked to me like a, a young guy that was um, you know, really dedicated to the sport and really going places. He um, had sort of uh, established himself in a, um, in a really perspective sort of arrangement with Tiny Clapper and he had a lot of nice young horses and I think, you know, a couple of years would have seen him competing amongst the very best. 
And what has been uh, the response you've picked up, Blythe, from, from other riders and from other New Zealanders? Um, it's been incredible, actually. I mean, he obviously made an impact on the people he met up here. Um, he was uh, a very popular guy, and um, I mean, everybody was very saddened by the, by the situation. Any tributes planned you've heard of? Not at this stage. I mean, I've gone to a competition, so I'm up in Scotland at the moment, but I'm sure that something will happen. And, um, you know, looking at the social media, Facebook and things, um, I mean, I'm sure that um, everyone up here is going to pull together and try and put something together. And in terms of the incident itself, with something like this, is there there some sort of formal inquiry that should take place? Um, Yes, always. I mean, the sport is a a very, well, it's fairly high risk, um, you know, with a big animal and, uh, you know, the speeds and and, and what we do. Um, But, uh, you know, the, the sport's got much more modern in its approach to safety issues. Um, and, you know, the design of fences and, uh, and the way uh, everything's presented. And, um, yes, I mean, there will be definitely a formal inquiry as to, as to the circumstances of this particular incident. As you say, there have been, um, you know, safety improvements in recent years. Does this incident suggest, though, that there is still more that, that, that could or should be done? Without doubt, I mean, if there if there are accidents, you, we need to continue to strive to you know improve uh, things. But um, you know, as I said, it is a high risk sport. Um, there is a lot of qualifications that riders go through these days to ensure that they're competent at each level. Um, quite often, uh, the serious accidents at a lower level, um, whereby the riders might, you know, be very competent and have competed a lot at a higher level, it's just the nature of the sport that uh, you can't control, you know, all of the circumstances. Sure, and, and I guess yourself and other riders will be back on the circuit th- this coming weekend uh, after a tra- tragedy like this. Is it, is it tough to keep going? Uh, of course, it is. Yeah, I mean, you always. Uh, question what you're doing but you know it's a very exciting sport and we participate in it um, knowing the risks um, I think probably the challenges of the sport are, are what attracts you know the riders um, it's a little bit I guess like getting in a car you don't always think that you might be involved in an accident at some point but it's a reality that you could be um, but you know you try and eliminate any any uh, risks and try and do your best to make sure that you're riding in a safe and and controlled manner. That's the former Olympic and world champion Blythe Tate. You're listening to Extra Time. A $150,000 bonus awaits each All Black should they retain the Rugby World Cup in 2015, a 50% increase on their 2011 bonus. The payment is part of a new collective agreement between the Rugby Union and the Players Association. The maximum Super Rugby contract will increase to $190,000 by 2015, with the minimum contract increasing by $10,000 to $70,000. The agreement also includes a significant increase in funding for both the men's and women's sevens programs as the country chases Olympic gold at the Rio Games in 2016. The budget for player payments has increased to over $121 million over the next three years, up from $98 million, which Rugby Union Chief Executive Steve Chu told Stephen Hewson came about through an increase in overall revenue. It's a complicated contract. It, um, it's a fine balancing act meeting um, the demands that we bring to the table on behalf of uh, New Zealand but also the provincial unions. And 
um, what the players uh, seek. So we're pretty happy with the, with the time it took um, and very pleased to get where we are now. I mean, there's a bit more money to, to, to chuck around, wasn't there? Clearly I wouldn't use the word chuck, Stephen. But um, yes, no, we're in a fortunate position where because of the strength of that partnership, because of the work we've all been doing, we have generated more money for this three-year period than we've ever done before. I think that's, that's obviously good news and it should be therefore reflected in um, the way we've gone into these negotiations. So we have a revenue-sharing model. Um, by definition, if the revenue goes up, then the amount there is to share also goes up, and, and that's the case in this particular period. So that was good news, and it made it an easier start, if you like. But then you get down to the detail as to how you spend it and who makes those decisions, and that's what bargaining's all about, and we've had some very robust conversations, but I think landed in a place that's fair and reasonable. There's an increase in that sort of super rugby tier but a decrease generally at the provincial level that's obviously the ongoing bid to get provinces more financially secure yeah so one of the one of the ambitions if you like we took into bargaining on behalf of the establishment for want of a better term was to bring the cost down for provincial unions and to do that by the mechanisms of the salary cap but also by reallocating some of the costs to where we think they are better um, where they better lie, which is within the professional game. So that's that's mirrored in that reduction. Where were things most contentious? Oh, look, I wouldn't want to narrow it down. I mean, the total number is always debated, um, how it's spent on, whether it's spent in the all-back environment or franchises, where the salary cap sits, how we deal with sevens and women's rugby, all those things were a part of the mix. So I wouldn't say you know anything particularly dominated those discussions. We spent a lot of time on a lot of them. Part of that package is the, the boost for or should the All Blacks win in 2015 from 100 to $150,000, the driver behind that? Oh, well, it was one of their claims and one we were comfortable with. Um, it's been 100000 since, I think, 2003. We've unfortunately only had to write that cheque out once and did it with considerable pleasure very quickly after the final whistle in 2011. But um, we think 150 is, is relative. We've done a bit of research what the other major nations uh, pay in terms of incentives, but... Um, as I say, I don't think it drives the players, um, particularly around a Rugby World Cup either, but it, it is a reward for what they bring to the game if we're successful. And there's no doubt we've all been able to build on the benefits of, of having won in, in 2011. Other countries actually probably, our guess is they put more um, weight on incentives, so they encourage their their players to, to win more than they currently do. We sit in the pleasing but not complacent uh, position where guys historically win a high percentage so pulling a lot on winning ratios doesn't actually have the same impact for us uh, and in the end we need to be able to give our guys a guarantee that they're going to earn their income which is part of the competitive package we're trying to uh, put in front of them. How much talk is there around player drain when it comes to collective bargaining? Yeah well that's definitely one of the issues that we are trying to, to keep on top of isn't it? Player retention is one of our biggest um, challenges and, and I'd have to say as of you know, where we sit right now for the last three or four years, we have been probably more successful than a lot of people had anticipated we would have been, um, partly because we've generated the revenue to spend, um, partly because we have great coaches, partly because we have good competitions, and partly because people want to play and wear, play for and wear the All Black jersey. So you know, there are other considerations as well, of course, but the, the, those things have all helped us in this battle, but ultimately we've got to create an employment environment of which remuneration is, is one aspect that's attractive to the player, so they stay here. More successful than you might have anticipated yourself? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, and I, Look, I don't want to single anyone out in particular, but I think the, the two 
big negotiations we had with Richie and Dan were important because they kind of anchors for a lot of other players. So we've retained a core senior group around them for longer. Winning in 2011 uh, has certainly helped, and you know up until you know possibly the last week or two when we've had a spate of injuries, so a lot of a lot more players getting an opportunity than we probably thought this year. Um, we were starting to worry about how we were going to give guys the experience so they could be ready in 2015 if all the more senior players don't make it. But it's it's a constant battle, and every time we lose a player that's uh, you know of the Super Rugby level um, or even ITM Cup level out of a game is a, is a loss, isn't it? So we'd like to keep everybody, but you know realistically we can't do that. So I'd say we're 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 comfortable with the level of success, but not complacent. Has the global financial crisis possibly helped you out there in the sense that there might not be the the money? To, to throw around for in Europe? Yeah, look, a little bit. I think one, one thing that's helped us actually is that inside the English rugby environment, there's a more cooperative relationship between the, the RFU and the clubs. So the clubs are seeing more, uh, seeing it more from the side of you know, how do we have a strong England team because that benefits us long-term. We want to be in really good shape for 2015. So that has a downside for us because they'll be harder to beat, but it's, it's probably the right place for them to be. Um, France continues to be difficult to read. Japanese market's heated up. Financial crisis has affected some people, but there's not a lot of logic to some of the numbers that get thrown about because they come out of individual uh, owners and investors who just simply want to buy the best team, and we've certainly seen plenty of examples of that over the years. So it possibly hasn't had a, a trickle-down effect as you might have anticipated or or other areas of business might have seen? Um, yeah, look, I think it's a bit hard to read. As I say, there are a lot of factors, but there's no doubt the financial crisis has slowed everybody down, so it will have had some impact, but I wouldn't put it down as the... The number one thing that's helped us keep our players because we've had to, you know, had to rein our own costs in. So it's sort of a two-edged sword, if you like. Although I suppose there's the the view that the New Zealand economy possibly hasn't been as hit as hard as obviously other other nations when it comes to the financial meltdown. The high New Zealand dollar has been a factor. That's, that hasn't done us any harm. Um, living in New Zealand and when you're seeing what's going on in other parts of the world, probably doesn't do us any harm. Uh, either, but it's a, it's a package, isn't it? And um, we're pretty happy with where we are, but we're certainly not getting complacent about it. That's the Rugby Union Chief Executive Steve Chu. Several hundred young basketballers got a tall dose of inspiration in Wellington this week from New Zealand NBA player Stephen Adams. The 20-year-old, along with NBA All-Star Brooke Lopez from the Brooklyn Nets, was in the capital holding a training camp. Our reporter Nick Butcher was there. Stephen Adams and Brooke Lopez were welcomed into the sports centre at Kilburnie to a haka from young fans. There are 250 young people taking part in these clinics with Steve Adams and Brooke Lopez. And if you were unaware just what number Steve Adams plays in his NBA team, well, he's number 12. And that is obvious from the 250 t-shirts I can see being worn by those that are taking part in the clinic. Rookie Stephen Adams is 2.13 metres or 7 foot tall and the brother of Olympic gold medal shot putter Valerie Adams. In June he became the first New Zealand basketball player to be selected in the first round of the NBA draft. He is the 12th draft pick in the Oklahoma City Thunder and will earn $2 million over the next two years. The former Wellington Scots College student told a media conference he is getting used to life in Oklahoma. 
it's quiet, but it's like it's good because then all you do is just focus on basketball. You know what I mean? And I don't know, it's just like a real cool group of people down there. You know what I mean? In the city, they're just real nice people. Kind of remind me of Wellington, kind of. You know what I mean? People here are pretty cool. He describes his life since being selected for the NBA draft as a series of tough training camps. The centre says he has learned a lot from his teammates since being thrust into the public spotlight. Just professionalism, really. How you hold yourself around the public, stuff like that. You know, you got to still, you can still be yourself, but just you know, you got to be professional. But I can't really explain it. But yeah, I mean, I got a good support group around me. You know, what I mean, good group of team that just kind of make sure that I don't, you know, go down the wrong path. So yeah, it's been. I don't know, kind of easy, I guess, just because they're protecting me. Brooke Lopez, who is an all-star player for the Brooklyn Nets, says at NBA level, having a strong support network is essential. They're keeping you in check, you know, but uh, there's someone you can rely on as well, you know, when you need them, when you're going through tough times. And it's, it's just uh, really important to have your family and really good friends uh, uh, surround you because uh, they've been uh, with you your entire life. They know who you are, uh, what your goals are, where you want to go, and um, they're the most ideal people to have around you in this situation. Both Adams and Lopez were overseeing basketball training camps at the sports centre, and many of the young players were in awe of the pair. Aidan Strickland is 15 years old and goes to Nainai College, playing for the school's team. It's real, like, awesome to meet someone from New Zealand that's gone over to the States to, like... Play ball. It's like someone to look up to. 16-year-old Batani Groom goes to St. Patrick's College and thought it was great meeting Stephen Adams. It's huge there. So I think it's influenced lots of people. Are you wanting to do basketball as a career in life? Yeah, or? Oh, I, yeah I think I do. I've you know, seen what Steve's done. You know, it's possible. So is New Zealand likely to see NBA player Stephen Adams playing for the Tall Blacks? Adams says he wants to, but it is a case of timing it with his commitment to the Oklahoma City Thunder. I'm kind of like in between. It's kind of like, yeah, I really want to play because it's a huge honour, but then it's like kind of following the you know, NBA kind of style. For me, I feel like me, if I do really well in the NBA, that'll help out all of New Zealand basketball as well, you know what I mean? So either way, we're going to get something out of um, me doing whatever, you know what I mean? So like, it's going to help out New Zealand either way. Stephen Adams will this week visit his old high school, Scots College, and also sign autographs on Friday with the All Blacks in the lead-up to the second Bledisloe Cup rugby test being held in Wellington this weekend. Nick Butcher with that report. That's extra time for this week. If you have feedback about anything on the show, please send it to sport at radionz.co.nz. I'm Ben Robinson. Thanks for listening. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.